You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guests today are Rod Graham, and uh, Rod is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Old Dominion University, and the coordinator of the university's Cyber Criminology Bachelor's Program. Welcome, Rod. And you're coming to us from Virginia. And I'm also welcoming back John Wood Jr., who is a national leader for Braver Angels. I talked to him quite a lot more about that, in more detail about that, on our previous podcast interview, which I'll link to in the show notes. And he's a former nominee for Congress, vice chairman of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County, writer, speaker, and musician. And I hope, John, you are still writing your book. <laughs> oh, you had you had to bring that up. Yes, I'm I'm still writing it. Not yet uh, finished. Events of you know of a current uh, nature have you know given me plenty else I have to do. But it's wonderful to be back with you, Iona. May I be the voice of your conscience yes, <laughs> and say, get writing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> welcome both of you. So I invited you on because I wanted to talk to you about your your. Your feelings, ideas, thoughts about the the current um, George Floyd protests in the U.S. And I think I'd like to largely stick to the protests and the protesters because I'm I think that we all condemn looting and rioting and things like that. And um, you know the protests are much bigger than that. Um, so I consider looters and rioters to be separate from protesters and not necessarily have share any of their aims. So I just want to talk about the, the protests themselves and about policing in the States um, and Black Lives Matter. And I have one very basic question right at the beginning, um, which might even be a bit controversial, but to what extent um, are these... To what extent do you think the problem is systemic racism and racism within the police force? And to what extent is it generally police overreach and brutality? Um, so I say this because I have, I'm not a sociologist or a statistician, which is why I invited you, Rod. Um, and I have heard various different figures cited for the likelihood of uh, police being brutal, um, roughing up and beating up uh, suspects depending on race, the likelihood of killing them depending on race. Um, and I I listened to um, a long talk of Glenn Lowry's in which he argues that black suspects are no more likely to be brutalized than white suspects. And I have also seen, I've seen many videos, uh, sort of shocking videos of uh, police um beating up or uh, threatening or, or killing uh, uh, suspects, um, black suspects. But also I've seen some very shocking videos where they are victimizing um, non-black suspects as well, mostly from following Nicholas Christakis, who I highly recommend following, another previous podcast guest who has been tracking police violence for, for years, uh, among other things that uh, Nicholas does. So, yes, I guess that's my first question. To what extent do you think the problem is racism and to what extent is it police brutality? Hmm. Well, I guess I could start. Um, I think I saw that, uh, listened to that uh, podcast with uh, Glenn Lowry, I believe. I think, um, and he, he probably was talking about the research done um, by the Harvard Scott, Roland, Roland Fryer, excuse me. And at that, for his research, it, it showed that there was not a racial difference in terms of lethal violence. 
I think when it came to being uh, just more aggressive in general, maybe using uh, non-lethal violence, a taser maybe, uh, then, then race played a factor. That, was a, that study got a lot of press. I think recently, though, some, some more research has come out saying that uh, race does matter, um, that um, black people are more likely to be victims of both lethal and, and uh, non-lethal violence. I think the problem, though, is that there's just not enough data out there. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to get the police to give you that information. So Fryer's research was just with, I think, four, uh, four police departments or four cities. Um, and so it's going to take a while for us to really get at that answer uh, because the data is just not available. Mm. Um, by the way, I just want to reassure you that everything we mentioned in passing, I will link to in the show notes later. So um, don't worry if you're making a reference. Um, everything will be linked to. Uh, John? Sure. So Rod is, I think, going to be closer to the particular statistics than I'm likely to be at this moment, just because vocationally, I'm not in a place to where I can track the track the most current data as much as I would certainly like to. Having said that, my general understanding of the data has been that more or less along the lines of, Rod, what you uh, which you represented Glenn Lowry is stating, by the way, I was talking to, I was doing Glenn's uh, podcast, Iona, before I jumped on here, uh, before I jumped on here with you, though we didn't get to get into that subject uh, quite so much. But what Glenn and, and many others will observe statistically, and so I'm just sort of reflecting what I have, what I frequently have reflected to me, um, and that what I have, you know, studied myself in more depth in earlier years has been that, um, just like you said, Rod, rates of of uh, uh, killings of individuals by police along uh, racial lines are not radically differentiated uh, between black and white, um, but that as you look at the broader range of arrests for various um, for various actions, the discrepancy becomes larger. But all of that, I think, from a, a perspective that is sort of critical of the institutional uh the you know the the um the the widely accepted uh narrative of institutional racism uh which i'll give my own view on in a moment but uh, the critical perspective uh, view on that will also add in the statistically relevant factor of of well you know that you have to measure uh police killings of African-Americans and others in the context of the frequency of, of police-civilian uh, interaction and the actual committing, the rate at which crimes are actually committed and what individuals will say and what Candace Owens was on Twitter uh, very oh, you know, no. <laughs> uh, vigorously articulating that she tends, what she tends to do is the, uh, you know, the, the uh, statistical justification for saying that black people commit more crimes have more police encounters, and therefore, it's only natural that more black people would tend to be killed by the police, and that in no way, you know, condemns law enforcement as being as being racist. So that that is the um, that is the conversation on on that side of things. Um, now, if you're asking my opinion, how much of what we are seeing in the streets right now is a result of genuine uh, police? Brutality or institutional institutional racism. Um, my answer to that question is is uh, is a fair amount, quite a lot. Um, I don't doubt the statistical layout that uh, Glenn Lowry and Candace Owens and others and others put forward. I think though that a lot of the problem here is in a, is in the fact that our in our society we have a very mushy understanding of what racism. It really even is as a concept. I could I could offer a scenario for you in which I could say, okay, police department X in a black community uh, has, you know, a certain number of, of killings, police department, police department X, uh, Y in a white community has a certain number of killings. It's theoretically possible that every killing of a black person in a black community by, by a police officer is a racist killing by a police officer while every killing by a police officer of a white person in another community is a non-racist killing. That's theoretically possible. It sounds highly implausible, but there's a reason to pursue this a bit as a thought experiment. Because when I look at racism, 
you know, a lot of people are fond of saying that nobody's born racist, that we learn racism over time. And I think that that's, I think that that's true. A book that I would recommend to your listeners, Iona, and Rod, I, I, I imagine you might be familiar with this too, um, is Ghetto Side by uh, Jill Leovi. It explores the uh, history of police relationships, uh, homicide investigation, uh, well, between the, between the cops and detectives and the African-American community in South Los Angeles, which incidentally is where I live and where I'm speaking to you from. So I have a fairly inter- intimate understanding of the landscape here. And part of what she looks at in the history uh, covered in this book, uh, going back generations, decades, right up to this current moment, is that white law enforcement policing black communities frequently develops an internal culture in response to just the social circumstances within which they have their activities that becomes very much condemning of the culture of the people that they police. And I can testify to the truth of this because I have friends in these departments who I've spoken to and I've, I have relationships with officers. Um, and uh, that, is, that is a factor. So for a black community that is being policed, their interactions are happening in this, con- in this context. Um, in another context, um, you might find that in a white community, police officers develop a very disparaging uh, viewpoint towards certain elements of, 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 a more, of a more Anglo community, of a more white community, um, on the basis of the fact that their interactions with a certain subset of folks there is negative and characterized by conflict. The problem there then is not necessarily one of intrinsic racism of the individual officer, but that the very context of policing itself when set in the larger societal frame of our cultural uh, disparities, right? Um, A history of institutional inequity that has led to the composition of, you know, black society within American society at the current moment sets in place sort of a formula for interaction within which the police cannot help to be seen as racist because the police do become prejudiced by virtue of the fact that they are policing in a hostile environment with people who have themselves been victimized by a larger system. And in that, in, in so much as that is the case, police and members of the community wind up being being victims of a larger set of circumstances that very few people have the altitude to analyze, certainly if you're living in it. And so there's actually credibility on all sides of this question to me, but the difficulty has been having a conversation that can possibly grapple with the nuance. So I think that the outburst of, outburst of anger and rage at institutional racism is real and in many respects justified. I think that the criticism of that narrative is also real and in many respects justified. And now, you know, that's the case I would make for why all of this is so much more complicated and so difficult to get a handle on for America right now and for the world. You know, that's a very, um, very nuanced way of thinking about it. Um, I, I think you're right about a lot of that. I would say, though, that some some people may pull out of that argument of uh, uh, blaming the victim narrative because they may say, OK, uh, you're saying that um, in a simple sense, because people are committing crimes, police are responding to that by developing this us versus them narrative. And they, they sort of otherize, I guess, in sociological terms and, and, and treat either black or white, uh, as you said correctly, it could, it could happen in a, in a white uh, area as well. They, they treat those citizens as, as the other, in a, in a sense, and then and it leads to uh, aggressive behaviors because they kind of dehumanize them a little bit. But someone may say, well, look, you're, that's no excuse. Um, e- even if they... Um, I'm agreeing with you. I'm, I'm just kind of giving a, an alternative. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they may say that's no excuse. Um, your your job is to police this neighborhood and, and do it fairly by the rules and the law. And if you you can't do that, then you shouldn't be you shouldn't be doing this job. Um, mm-hmm. That that that's the way that people would probably take that. But in the overall sense, I, I do agree with you that these are some broader processes that are not reduced just to black and white. We see them as black and white uh, because of the history of the United States, but it's mainly about these interactions between law enforcement and the people that they need to police. Mm, Right. Yeah. Yeah, And just to to respond, if I can, to the the blaming the victim uh, inference that that might seem to be there. It's, It's hard to give that analysis without risking that impression. But the truth is that in that you know, in my way of looking at this, the, 
the very same fact goes the other way around. If police are responding to the hostility of the community, the community is also responding to the hostility of the police. It, it is a, it is a, it is a concurrent uh, cycle, and a viciously concurrent cycle. Right, um, one thing reinforces the other, and so our instinct, particularly given the binary nature of political and you know social uh, argument is to look for a starting point to where we can securely affix blame as having began sort of the domino effect of, of, of bad outcomes um, in a way that allows us to, to say that one side is chiefly at fault because one side started it. That's the way our politics break down. But history really isn't that, that neat or clean. Nobody in this generation started this cycle of events. Um, and as you go back in time, what we see is, yes, I mean, we can say that the larger context of circumstances in America today descends from a larger sort of superstructure of racial inequity. And if you want to call that white supremacy, I mean, it's that historic reality that that phrase is, phrase is referring to. Um, but that doesn't actually tell – that doesn't actually give us the leverage we think it does to make definitive statements on either side of this about who is at fault in the moment, because I think everybody is is reacting. I'll give you I'll give you an example from my personal life. Um, so, I as Iona, you know my um, my biography a little bit uh, personally because we've talked about it. But you know, I'm I'm African American. I'm half African American, half Anglo American. I grew up in uh, Culver City, California, which is a you know a middle class, uh, multicultural uh, suburban uh, city within LA County. And um, you know, in that context, I you know had a pretty gentle upbringing. But on the black side of my family, I had cousins who were from you know south la uh had uh, so i grew up visiting inglewood and south central and so forth and had a view of life from different sides of the tracks but i've had encounters with police in white suburban areas and i've had encounters with police in in the hood and i've been treated differently though my skin color has been the same in each of those contexts when, when i get pulled over by an officer in simi valley uh or you know if i ever ran into a cop in 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 Culver City, the the interactions have, I mean, have not been particularly threatening. But I can remember um, I lived in the Jordan Downs projects for a certain period of time. That's where my wife is from. I was living with her and her family, and uh, I was driving to school one day. I was probably twenty years old, going to a community community college, and uh, driving out of the projects, I was going down the street, came to a stop sign, and to the right there's a police car parked. It just seemed to be sort of waiting, you know almost like a lion in the grass, if you <laughs> if you will. And as I started to cross the intersection, it, I realized that I had left my uh, I left my backpack um, back at a back at my uh, my then girlfriend's uh, family's uh, house. So I, I hooked a U-turn and went back, but I hooked that U-turn right in front of the officer. And the officer clearly thought that I had maybe done it in response to seeing him there, but it wasn't an illegal U-turn. Was, there was nothing I did that was illegal or that in and of itself should have drawn suspicion. Nevertheless, uh, I turn around. I, he, he flares his lights. Uh, he, he goes, he, uh, you know, he pulls me over, gets out of the car. And rather than saying what I would have expected to have heard in Simi Valley or Culver City, something along the lines of, you know, hello there, excuse me, do you know why, do you know why I stopped you? Um, he said, um, he said, and really he said just, you know, with a clinch, you know, sort of a clinch jaw and a, and a sort of a, just a very intense kind of demeanor. He said, why did you turn around? He said, why'd you turn around? You know, so just like that kind of barked it at me a little bit. And I, I, answered i said well, i was on my way to school um officer I, I go to i go to pierce college but i realized that i had left my realized that i left my book bag um on the desk at home so i've got to turn back around and go get it now look i speak in a certain way with a certain diction as a product of my upbringing which immediately sets me apart uh, a little bit linguistically or quite a bit i suppose from my cousins who grew up in South LA and from most of the guys this officer is used to interacting with and pulling over. So that that immediately triggered a bit of a confused, I think, sort of reaction on his part. He still he asked for my license. I, I opened my wallet. I gave him my license. I also made sure he was able to see my school ID. He went back and ran my license. I knew he wasn't going to find anything because I had no record or anything like that. 
came back to my window after taking a fairly long time and almost tossed my wallet through through the window. Didn't even look me in the eye or apologize. He, he nearly sort of tossed the wallet back to me or tossed my ID back to me through the window and through gritted teeth said, have a nice day and, and kind of stomped off. Now, that is an office that that is an interaction with a white police officer. Actually, he was he was Latino, I think, uh, but, you know, more more white looking. But, you know, to, to be exact, but that was an interaction with the police officer that I think could only be explained by where I was and what community I was geographic by the geographic and and municipal context of where I was uh, and the larger cultural context and the context of his own previous encounters uh, with with members of the community in a way that has had clearly developed a hostility with him and his behavior signaled to me a justification for the suspicion, for the defensiveness, for the fear that many regular members of the community and the and the uh, just the indignant sense of outrage that many young black men in the community of Watts would feel in inter- having to interact on a regular basis with an officer like that. Um, and so that's that's my experience in this sort of situation. And because I present a certain way, compose myself a certain way, I don't have to feel quite as much nervousness. And I also don't have to signal as much of a threat to an individual like that. But if you take an officer who's conditioned to be aggressive and defensive because he expects the community to be, and he, he, he's expected to, to aggressively pursue suspicious behaviors and you have the community that is responding to that predisposition exerting itself on folks even when they are completely innocent then this is the social outcome you get i i get that that makes a lot of sense you're saying in a sense it's like a, it's the it's an interaction effect if it was yeah. if it was a statistical model or mm. something. it's a sweet mm, generous, yeah. sweet generous phenomenon that's through the interaction you know i that makes sense to me um i think it's funny in all black spaces um you will hear the conversation saying, okay, how you present yourself matters in these interactions. Um, not necessarily, people may not have the same type of uh, diction you have or, or, or that, but certainly complying with the officer's requests, you should do that. Right? And so, and so that, that can be uh, talked about in black spaces. But when it becomes a... Uh, multiracial space when black and white people are around, then that part of the discussion can't be had because it looks almost as if you're saying, hmm, okay, so this man is telling me that, okay, if I act a certain way, I have to, you know, talk a certain way, a a white person doesn't have to do this, so why do I have to do this, you know? Um, But it's important, it's important to make that point uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's not just the police's the blame can't be placed just on police. It's all it's the interaction between the police and the and the civilian. I want to I want to say something about. So I think Iona started by bringing up statistics uh, uh, to kind of help us understand what extent is racism or police brutality. And I, I I've always been concerned about that way of trying to talk about this. I mean, it's important to look at those aggregate numbers. You know, that's nice. Uh, it gives us a nice uh, entry into the conversation. But ultimately, uh, you can only understand it through the ways that you are talking about it. Like this is a qualitative phenomenon, yeah, yeah uh, much yeah. more than it is a quantitative one. Mm. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not sure you're trying to understand the reaction to it, right? Yes, yeah. yes, most definitely. And so I, I don't think I ever answered Iona's question, but I think it's more about I think I think that there's uh, systemic racism in uh, in law enforcement in general. Why that is? Uh, it's multi-causal, uh, and um, I sometimes get into trouble with my colleagues when I do voice uh, some of my opinions because I will put some of the onus on on black people themselves because they are committing crimes at higher rates, which will necessitate a certain response. But it's also the case that, um, and John, you would know more about this. I do believe that politically there was a push starting in the sixties to militarize the police to kind of, you know, take this instead of it being a neighborhood type of policing, it's more of a, okay, let's go get the bad guys. Let's invest in uh, SWAT 
uh, SWAT gear and buying the armored cars and all that kind of stuff. And let's, you know, and, and I think that that's that's a part of the culture of police, and and that that's a problem as well. It, it, it's hard to imagine, of course. I mean, so one other area in which the the capacity for nuance in our current discourse fails us is in our ability to sort of understand. I think the 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 way the, the inherited nature of the characteristics of institutions. Right now, the left. Uh, uh, leaning part of the uh, uh, of the ideological uh, landscape is more comfortable uh, w- with analyzing that, but I think that they tend to bring a lot of the, the the conclusions run up very closely behind the analysis. There's the, the nuance is, is lacking, but the subject matter is still something that they're willing to jump into. Whereas the conservative disposition is to try and look at everything from the agency of the individual involved and. I think isn't quite as quick to appreciate the particular dynamics that attend institutional personalities. And so to your point, Rod, I mean, yeah, you know, I would imagine that that militarization of the police did begin to accelerate a fair amount in the sixties. And of course that was in response to the militarization of, I mean, to, you know, to, to, to the militant, uh, no, not just the, well, not the just riots. the military, yeah, the yeah. civil rights movement, but yes, the riots and the, but the, you know, the black power movement, the nonviolent movement to a degree, but certainly the black power movement, um, the riots. Um, and then, you know, again, so we have the cycle, uh, that I just described beginning to, uh, accelerate historically then because suddenly black communities are responding to that gangs begin to form in response to the aggressiveness of police officers. And then you have the introduction of course, of drugs and ultimately um, ultimately cocaine in a way that suddenly makes uh, makes the attainment of tremendous wealth through illegal means a boon not just to gang activity but to illegal activity within police forces who on the one hand are charged with monitoring the explosive growth of of weapons power in these communities in which you know Crips and later the Bloods and others start to become powerful in a military sense in a way they hadn't been before, but within which there's also the opportunity for officers uh, who are who are corrupt to tap into that system in a way to where they police it so as to maintain it and to ultimately derive a lot of you know wealth uh, for themselves in that way. And so you see that um, illustrated in a movie like um, American Gangster, right, about uh, Frank Lucas with uh, Denzel Washington, uh, where it turns out about you know, three quarters of the of the police force uh, in New York City is is on the take. Uh, you know, uh, in in the, in the drug trade, and that you know that that very same sort of thing happened here in Los Angeles. Um, and so time passes, and um, you know the police uh, the, the police state sort of ramps up. And the thing is, is there are genuine public. Uh, public safety concerns that need to be addressed. Gang violence is a problem in this context. Uh, you know, uh, drug prolifer- proliferation of heroin, crack cocaine, and, and and other things is a genuine problem that you would think law enforcement would need to play a role in. But what we don't appreciate is, one, the complexity of interactions that go into producing that circumstance, and two, the complexity uh, of well, just the way in which that descends to us in our current moment in a manner that explains behaviors across the board that should not allow for us to make stark moral judgments. And yet there are stark injustices that are nevertheless occurring that need to and will inevitably be responded to in stark emotional fashion, both in the form of people who are taking to the streets and and protesting what is indeed a clear cut, I think, I mean, you know, just my opinion, clear-cut case of, of brutality, right, in, this, in the instance of George Floyd. Um, but then you also have the justifiable skepticism of the narrative, the larger sort of analytical narrative, social narrative, uh, that surrounds that, coming from, you know, uh, folks like our, you know, my friend Glenn Lowry and 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 others, in, in which I also find some myself having uh, a good amount of sympathy. So um, shit's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The answer to me seems seems to be, in creating the space for the conversation and the understanding, uh, for the for the nuance necessary to inform our each other better, not just about structural reality, but about human reality, how we actually experience these things, 
and and to to temper our our our, our moral judgments of each other and to also stand strongly against those institutional forces that present prevent those conversations from happening. So, Ion, I'm very grateful for you uh, for be, being one of the good guys in this scenario, to be sure. Oh, thank you. I, I'm rarely described as one of the good guys, so <laughs> <laughs> that's quite surprising. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I'm quite struck by, so um, some people who are uh, uh, on my Amid, among my Twitter followers, have expressed the opinion that it's very divisive to frame this in terms of Black Lives Matter and violence against Black people, and we should be focusing on police violence more generally. But I have been struck by, um, I have some sympathy with that argument, especially from outside of the US. Um, so it's a little bit strange to see British protesters uh, chanting, hands up, don't shoot, when our police are not armed, for example. Um, and uh, I think that British police only killed two people, um, have only killed two people since 2018. And one of them was the London Bridge terrorist. So um, we do have a, a less of a problem, although there have been some uh, incidences, definitely of police brutality and suspicious deaths in custody. But I'm quite struck by how uh, unified people are, actually. I'm very heartened by the fact that this is, there's no kind of uh, sensation of there being a race war over this. That's not my feeling. When I'm looking at the footage of protests, friends of mine who are in the Twin Cities went to the protests there and they posted uh, footage, which I watched, which wasn't public. And it's an a sea of white faces because of where they live in Minneapolis. It's a very, very white area. So it's this huge sea of white people with their um, chanting uh, George Floyd, say his name and Black Lives Matter and things. I'm, I'm very heartened by that just kind of show of unification. And um, there's a sense for me in which um, even if the narrative is wrong, let's say this, we've got the statistics completely wrong, we discover police are twice as likely to um, to beat up and kill white people as black people. I don't think that's likely to be true, but let's say it is. I'm not sure that even matters. It's like this is a, um, a, a way of creating more justice in the world. Um, I don't know what you think about that. I'm <laughs> just throwing that out there. It's not really a question, is it? Um, well, that um, uh, yes, the, 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 this is certainly a multiracial. The, the protests are certainly uh, multiracial. I think um, there's something about that George Floyd video that's that's special. I think so. Let me let me do a quick detour. So I'm I'm, I'm working on trying to understand uh, the politics behind sex work and sex trafficking. Um, so it, 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 right now it seems kind of like, what is he talking about? But I'll, I'll connect the two. And so um, the, um, the laws that have been passed to deal with sex trafficking relied on what criminologists call an ideal victim. So that, that would be, uh, in a sex trafficking context, it would be um, a uh, white, young, uh, beautiful woman who, through no circumstances of her own, was, um, was abducted and, and trafficked. The, the reality is much different and it's, it's much messier in that it's often the case that people, women get into that through through drugs or they actually want, would like, uh, not like to be trafficked, but would recruit a, a pimp or something, and which which is still trafficking by the law, but it's a different circumstance. So so the the people who are pushing for these laws would prefer to put the ideal victim out there because it generates the most sympathy. So I think it's the same with that George Floyd video. So many of the instances in the past were kind of murky. Uh, either you didn't see it so openly or it, it was a he said, she said type deal. But here uh, it is quite obvious, uh, as John pointed out, that, that, that this was misconduct, that this was a killing. And, and so people can see that and it's, and it's out there. And so it can generate a lot of sympathy. Uh, more so than in, in some of the other cases. Um, yeah. I, I also think, uh, just to 
the um, I would like it to be focused actually on on um, black people. I, I think that um, even though you're right, Iona, this is about police brutality in general. Focusing on those singular events like the George Floyd video, although it's good for for generating sympathy, is not, I think, the main grievance. I think it's it's the everyday forms of people who don't get killed and they may not even get arrested, but they have these negative experiences with police officers. And so they 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 sense that they know that. And so the, the George Floyd video is just a way, it's just a, a kind of flashpoint just to bring that yeah. out. And it's black people who are dealing with that much yeah. more than uh, uh, whites. Uh, so Yeah, I, I, have, um, I have a lot of sympathy uh, with, um, with, with those points, Rod. And I also have uh, some sympathy with what you've said too, um, Iona. Um, on the one hand, it, it is beautiful seeing people come together from across across race across cultures uh, to stand together for justice, just in and of itself, that's that's a beautiful thing. And you know, particularly for the people who are out there doing so uh, peacefully and really letting the strength of their and the courage of their convictions speak for, uh, speak for them. Um, that's just beautiful to see. Beautiful in its idealism. Beautiful in its. Uh, Beautiful, just in the social juxtaposition that that it is. Um, I do agree, though, Rod, that this is about this is about much more than George Floyd. Really, uh, George Floyd, uh, his death is the match that has lit a much larger pile of brush uh, on fire. By the way, it's even larger in its general circumstance than just then then the history and the broader multifaceted reality of the black experience and and uh, institutional prejudice institutional institutional racism um you know this is this is i think um i mean this is set against the context of economic depression in result in 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 response to a public health scare that caused us to bet heavily on a certain sort of you know uh, very centralized and aggressive use of government power to sort of you know regulate social interaction underneath the you know leadership of uh of a president who was uniquely divisive in the context of an already very polarized American society and was elected more or less to be so because in our fervor in the culture wars, really on on both sides, we'd sort of thrown out the idea that moral leadership and rebuilding the civic foundation of our culture of interaction was even in, an important thing to do. And so we've outsourced our ability to communicate to each other, to pundits and talk radio show hosts and and personalities who treat every day like it's election day and we haven't tended to the actual relationships of the American people but to bring it back uh, down to the level of of the of the black experience and how and, and where, where things are complicated enough what I am heartened by is the fact that you know America is it seems at the moment really listening in a way that Americans have not uh, before uh, to the black community in a manner that might position us to have uh, a a real and thorough sort of engagement with the true complexity of circumstances and you know the true pain and injustice of circumstances that visit themselves upon black America in the current moment, not just historically, but descending from that history. At the same time, I have a concern that the breadth of this coalition uh, that is forming uh, to to give audience and to amplify this this conversation is one formed in part from idealism, but in another part from sheer fear. You know, I think that there are a lot of folks who are warming up to the idea of embracing the racial conversation because they're looking at the streets and they're saying, "Jesus Christ, we have no choice," and that there's a certain sense on the part of some folks who are pushing uh, a narrative from the other side that says that this is a this is a moment in which we can make quick shifts in the social landscape uh oh, barreling through people because people are afraid and we can get people to accept certain premises because there's going to be a price to be paid for for not accepting them that i'm very concerned about one just 
for its own sake, because you know I fear the continuation of our polarization in in worse and worse ways. And two, you know, like I've already said, I am skeptical of the left, um, the left, uh, the, the left wing social uh, analysis of 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 much of this. Even while I have a good deal of sympathy for some of it and where so much of it comes from in our actual experience. And so what I'm hoping is that this in this moment leads to the great expansion of intercultural empathy in our society, particularly with respect to the black experience, but that that in turn doesn't necessarily presuppose the answer to all questions, but rather leads us to a nuanced engagement of these realities that can be conducted in a manner that maintains and builds upon the strength of our relationships while also providing a more a more sophisticated and clear-eyed understanding of the things that we are actually dealing with and have been dealing with as a nation so that we we can make you know material progress in the many many places it needs to be made alongside social progress uh, in preserving preserving the bonds of the American people and that's a delicate balance to strike I know I, I tend to do big, uh, big data downloads on folks. You, you have to forgive me, Rod. For, for folks who know me, Rod, I, uh, <laughs> I'm famous for the, you know, for the lengthy soliloquy and you know, shoving it all into a, in, into a big whopping nutshell. But yeah, that's that's my point of view. Uh, it's, a, it's a skill I wish I had. <laughs> I, I appreciate yeah. it. It gets on people's nerves sometimes, but I, I got to be me. No, no, it's great. It, well, I could try and I, I, I could look at a disagreement that we have, which is uh, you're skeptical of a lot of what's on the left. And I I, um, um, I tend to separate. I understand that the, uh, you know, the left tends to use these terms like white supremacy and um, um, white fragility, even uh, thinking back to uh, Iona's last conversation. And um, but I tend to take it as um, that those ideas are pushing us forward uh, in a sense that it's it's trying to um, give more uh, civil rights and benefits to more people. So all of those movements from the left, from gay rights to women's, women's lib, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm actually, you know, I, I used to be a little bit more skeptical because it's not grounded, at least in, the, in academia, it's not exactly grounded in uh, hard science or data collection. It's a, it's critical, uh, critical studies, so they don't care about that so much. But when I look back on it, I think to myself, okay, um, it was those scholars on the left who were pushing for changes in the tough on crime drug laws. When everyone else was like, oh, no, this is good. They're criminals. Keep them in, <laughs> lock them up. And they were the ones who were developing that narrative. It's the same with mass incarceration, uh, racial profiling, stopping for, like all of those. And so now we're on to police brutality. And I think all of those positive changes, I'm not saying it's all good now, but a lot of those positive changes came from those scholars and those activists and those progressives on the left. So, you know, I'm sure there can be some excesses like, you know, saying that everyone is a racist because you disagree with them. I mean, obviously, that's a problem, but it's kind of like, you know, I'll take the good with the Mm -hmm. bad. No, I I respect that that point of view. And I I think that I agree with it. Um, My skepticism is towards the larger sort of. What I, what I see as being the larger sort of kind of left-wing framing of the, the the way in which we characterize America, the way in which we characterize the the black experience uh, in a manner that, you know, rightfully, um, in a manner that rightfully highlights the inequities and the injustices that, you know, cannot be dismissed if we were to truly understand this country and who we are as black people within it, but in a way that also can sometimes bake in a certain one, a certain pessimism uh, about the capacity that this nation has for redemption. Two, can utilize a certain vocabulary. I mean, you mentioned terms like white supremacy and, and others that can utilize a certain vocabulary that itself can have the effect of sort of killing a constructive discourse in the cradle, if you will, before it really is able to begin. And that is me saying that uh, while also feeling and, and agreeing that with you that there are also ways in which you know certain terms and ideas manage to push for the 
push things forward anyway because they're still pointing what the idea of white supremacy is still pointing to something real even if i would even with if i would seriously quibble with the strict uh, implications of the term right and so uh, and and we would have to spend a little bit of time on that to do that justice um, but just to say that there are sort of large conclusions to be to be drawn from i think the left wing social narrative that have the tendency of pr- producing one strife and discourse where it doesn't need to be and two pessimism in terms of our our um, outlook on the good that uh, America is is capable of at any given time where optimism could be rightfully justified um, and three that also has in a sense sort of a tendency to to overlook the the, the real magnitude of some of the social um, uh, triumphs that have already uh, taken place in this country in a way that should inform our sense of what's possible for black America and for America in general um, uh, in this, in this period of time and going onward. So um, there are on on the level of details um, you know, there's, there's not a great shortage of overlap between, I mean, just for myself, I do believe that, the United States of America is constituted in structural ways that express themselves in the general sort of disadvantaging of African Americans. I do think that that is true. Um, I, my explanation for it would be a bit different than what you'd hear on the right or the left typically, but I think that that is, I think that that is true, but I don't think that that, but I think that there's a danger in having a narrative that is so pessimistic that leaves people feeling like the only way out is possibly social unrest and and in most extreme cases, you know the sort of violence that we're seeing in the streets at this at this very moment. Um, so you know my skepticism is of that sort of nature, but it does but it's not to negate the underlying uh, material premise of of the narrative in many key respects, and the most key one just being the fact that things have been set up in a way in this country that is grossly unfair. To, to black Americans. And, and that is what I hope we can focus on in a nuanced and intelligent way in this country, if we can manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you, I, I know that, um, John, you have limited time. So perhaps we could um, end for 10 or 15 minutes by, by thinking about what the best way forward is and um, what kinds of, what kinds of concrete measures, or do you think that it's not even necessarily a case of concrete measures? It's a case of first listening, acknowledging, understanding more about the situation. Um, but in addition to that, what kind of concrete measures would you would you advocate? Um, how do you think? What do you think the best way forward is? Hmm. Well. Mm. Um, Rod, I can I can say something really quickly that um, um, if um, uh, if if you like, sure. I tend to focus on a lot of things at the level of uh, civil society. I, I think that there's a big way in which communities um, in the United States of America. This isn't this isn't about black communities. This is in communities general have failed to be centers for the type of social connection that they should be because we've outsourced so, so much of our cultural communication to to media outlets and we have outsourced a, a certain amount of the actual work of community to sort of you know the governmental level apparatuses that part of what would be really healing in this moment of time and I'm prejudiced because this is the work that I do uh, is in building up channels and in part using technology to do it, uh, whereby Americans can earnestly get to know each other across these racial and cultural divides in a manner that allows us to circumvent the stereotyping impulses, uh, you know, of the of the polarized sort of media landscape. And so, in the work that in the work that we do, you know, we bring people together in, and that other folks do, we bring people together in physical space to meet each other in the geographic landscapes where they share a, share a community. 
um, or do so digitally via Zoom, et cetera, to actually talk about the issues that are facing their communities, find the places of disagreements, and sift through the generalizations that otherwise will unfold between, say, you know, law, uh, police departments, and um, and the communities that they that they police. I'll tell you really quickly. Um, in Minneapolis, um, the um, well, the co-founder of Brave Angels is a man named Bill Doherty, Professor Bill Doherty. Uh, he's designed most of our programs, but he also has a program called Police and Black Men, which has been wildly successful over the last several years um, in Minneapolis, brokering dialogue and connection between cops, between the community, and establishing friendships which have been leveraged in the direction of peacemaking uh, in Minneapolis, and that has been growing in its effectiveness all the way up until it came to a screeching halt because of you know the the killing of George Floyd and the eruption of the nation, and what's you know what's interesting, just a sad reality of human nature is that you know one bad thing, and this is true for people in general, one bad thing, um, if somebody says something critical about you, somebody tweets something nasty about you, one nasty tweet, Iona, you know how this feels. Or 90% of your oh, attention yes. <laughs> and 10% of your attention will be left for the 90% of wonderful things that people might be saying about you at any given time, because that's just the way we are. Um, moments of, of you know, peaceful reconciliation rarely go viral unless the world is in flames, right? But there's been good work going on in Minneapolis specifically between cops and the community for a long, long time. And so, my work is dedicated towards multiplying those interactions, but also trying to raise awareness of the fact that, yes, you know, um, there are ways in which the media can shine a light on injustices that we need to be aware of, but there's also this dangerous effect of, of social media and mainstream media tending to take the worst things that are happening in America at a given moment and making it seem like that's 95% of our reality when it isn't. And yet, when you believe that, suddenly, you know, it that that becomes more and more true because you act on that reality. You know, we respond in desperation uh, to to circumstances that may have may really have a dire element, but we but we're not counterbalancing that with an appreciation for progress when it is being made, and that in and of itself sets progress back. And so multiplying those sorts of programs, those sorts of efforts across the country while seeking to sort of counteract the media uh, establishment that roots us in conflict unendingly without creating the space for genuine progress and reconciliation, that's that's where I tend to go in my own work. And I don't suggest that that's the only solution. Uh, I think many things need to happen, but that that's my particular focus. I, um, I guess I, I should talk about my uh, discipline, uh, academia. Um, and I believe that we focus far too much. This is somewhat similar to what John was saying, uh, I think, about focusing on some of the positives that have happened uh, in the United States over the past, to Black people over the past uh, uh, 50 years or so. We kind of ignore those and focus on the negative things. I think that also occurs within academia. It's, it's kind of uh, attractive or sexy to find the new site for racism or discrimination. <laughs> yeah. And um, <clears throat> and the thing is, um, I don't think those studies are invalid. It's just that they're asking they're asking the question, so you're going to find an answer. And so, what needs to happen is uh, there needs to be I don't know how this would occur, but some kind of push, some kind of uh, desire to study the successes uh, and find out okay, how is it that um, these this this group of poor people in Generation One becomes uh, does well, and in generation two, you know, they're uh, they're doing, um, uh, or in generation one, they're poor, and in generation two, they're doing better. You know, kind of understand those successes. We don't do that. We don't look at the positives. I, I can remember um, about six or seven years ago, I was consistently finding that young black people were much more interested in technology, uh, especially mobile phone technology. And so I was I was doing these studies and presenting information about this, but it wasn't interesting, no, <laughs> because I was saying something kind of positive, and I was saying like you know if if it's the case that that young black people are more interested in technology, they see some some efficacy in technology. Let's capitalize and leverage that for social change. But it, it wasn't I wasn't talking about racism or discrimination. 
So it didn't get any play. I'm not sure if, if mm-hmm. how it can get to the point where we get scholars who are more interested in looking at uh, solving problems instead of identifying them. But I think that's what that's what needs to happen. Yeah, that resonates with me. Thank you so much. My feeling um, is that this is a this is a huge opportunity. And um, I wanted to mention that a lot of people on my Twitter have been annoyingly whataboutist uh, in this regard. They've been saying, well, we're we're focusing on this, but we're not focusing on what's going on in Hong Kong or what's going on in India, etc. Um, and I, I feel as though this is a thread we've taken hold of, and we need to pull on this thread and see where it goes. This is an opportunity that that has to be that needs to be taken that could lead to something really really good um but i'm i'm also a bit scared because it feels so out of control i feel as though some snowball has started rolling and i don't know where it's um this is a terrible terribly confused metaphor but i don't know where it's going <laughs> what it's going to gather in its path right. um what the results will be mm. So I have this sense of vertigo. Um, yeah. No, I'm uh, just I'm just expressing, uh, you know, um, uh, sympathy with your with your feelings. I mean, I've had so many conversations in these last few days with with smart, motivated, you know, capable people who just feel powerless. You know, but I do think that the 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 headline is the first thing that you that you pointed to, which is that th- there is an opportunity here. And the truth is, is that we are not alone in history in terms of, you know, people living at a time in America and elsewhere where everything seems uncertain and, you know, feels like it threatens to fall apart. It's in those moments, historically, I think, that the seeds are sown for some of the great uh, rebirths in human civilization. And so let's take hold of this as potentially one of those moments if we act upon our convictions and our and our commitment to each other right as human beings uh, motivated by goodwill ultimately if we allow you know that spirit to, to guide us the spirit that guided the nonviolent movement and you know that articulates itself in our in our deepest moral tradition traditions in the black community and beyond um, you know we won't we won't fail to make this country uh, a better place it just it just means that 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 may be the work of our generation. And I'm fine with that. Rod, is there anything you feel you haven't been able to say that you would like to say that you haven't hasn't you haven't really had an opportunity to express? Well, John has been droning no, on so no. much. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. I, I'm I'm very uh, I feel good about the protest. They are, I think that uh, this is a wonderful opportunity for change, and there will be some kind of change. I mean, we have we have body cameras because of uh, the protests in Ferguson. And, and um, uh, or at least that was the the push to get the body cameras, and so we've been putting those on officers now. So something will happen. I, I just hope that it's it's meaningful um, and lasting. Very grateful, uh, very grateful to you, Rod, to get to hear your point of view. Yeah, it was nice meeting you digitally. Yes, sir. You've both been absolutely wonderful guests, and um, I feel as though um, this has been one of the more eye-opening uh, podcasts I've done. Um, because I think that I, being British, I just, um, I just don't have a good sense of what the black American experience is like. And I feel that I've had, I've received a much better sense of it from both of you today. Oh, Um, I wonder if your listeners can tell, I'm sorry to cut you off. I know we're about to leave, but that I am a black professor. I don't know if it was obvious or not. Um, I don't, I don't (laughs) know. I feel that American, uh, when Black Americans have a different accent from, have a kind of specific accent. But um, yes, uh, uh, Rod is a black professor. Yes. It may not have been clear. Sometimes I talk on the phone and people can't tell. So. Ah, uh, right. I, I, I knew Rod. I, uh, yeah. I, I, uh, it was okay, good, 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 I guess. Um, yeah, here in Britain, it's not the case. So it's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, but that's a whole other discussion. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, folks. I, I've I've got to, I've got to run, but this has been wonderful, and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Yes, I would love that. Thank you so much, both of you, and especially for coming on at such short notice. Thank you, Iona. Thank you. All right, Rob. take this care. This is wonderful. Thank you both. Have a wonderful week, everyone.
You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.